if a plane crashes in a faraway country that you don't know anything about, will you care? Hello, I'm Joseph Scholz, and welcome to the Deep Culture Podcast, where we explore culture and the science of mind. And I am here in rainy, windy Tokyo, and I'm here with my co-host Ishita Ray, but you are in Durgapur in eastern India, right? That is right, and it's a hot, scorching summer day here. Well, I'm so happy to be with you today. So the title of this episode is Culture and the Self. And we got interested in this topic because we were saying that there's a fundamental dilemma to being a cultural bridge person. How do you move between different cultural worlds without losing your sense of self? On the one hand, you need to be adaptable, you need to fit in, but you have to find a way to be true to yourself. And this is a fascinating topic for me personally because I grew up in India where the question of who you are and how you fit into society are really intertwined. Well, you grew up in Bengal, speaking Bengali, but you also speak Hindi and English and French. Uh, but when you are with other Indians, you are seen as Bengali or how does that work? Well, yes, I am Bengali and I grew up in a Hindu family, although we don't really practice it very actively. And of course, I am an Indian citizen. So these are some of the cultural worlds that are part of me. And India is such a collective society. To understand a person as an individual, you need to understand the communities they come from, their cultural self, so to speak. Well, and that just fascinates me, this idea that we have a personal self and also a cultural self. Because in the U.S., where I grew up, people are almost always focused on this idea of their individual self. When I ask my American students if they are typical, for example, most of them say, oh, no, uh, they're not typical. They want to see themselves as unique individuals. But isn't it very American to think that you have to be unique? Well, absolutely. It's the country of individualism. So they often don't notice their own Americanness. Uh, for example, that this desire to be seen as unique is itself quite American. And this is the curious thing about the cultural self, isn't it? It's hard to even understand what's cultural about ourselves without these intercultural experiences. I never really felt Indian until I left India. And I never felt American until I left the U.S. So in this episode, we want to explore this idea of culture and the self. We'll talk about how our sense of self is shaped by culture. We'll ask the question, are you typical? And we'll explore the idea of the personal self and the cultural self. And that brings us to part one, I am a cat. If we are going to talk about the culture and the self, we first have to be clear about what we mean when we use the word self. 
So we'll start with a dictionary definition from the American Heritage Dictionary. And the first two entries are self, the total essential or particular being of a person, the individual, or the essential qualities distinguishing one person from another, individuality. So the self is what makes me, me, my unique essence. I also like to think of the self as kind of the territory of the me. You know, the opposite of self is other. And this is such a common idea that it might not occur to us that the self has anything to do with culture. Some people will think, well, I am just me. But of course, it does have something to do with culture because our sense of self is shaped by our cultural background. And that's not just my opinion. It's something that has been studied and can be quantified. There's a classic article about this. I'm sure we have mentioned it several times on this podcast already. Uh, it's by Marcus and Kitayama, and it's called Culture and the Self, Implications for Cognition, Emotion, and Motivation. So the main idea of this article is that culture affects how we experience the self. Exactly. So let's read the first two sentences of that article. People in different cultures have strikingly different construals of the self, of others, and of the interdependence of the two. These construals can influence and in many cases determine the very nature of individual experience, including cognition, emotion, and motivation. I find the wording very interesting. It talks about different construals of the self. So, a self isn't just something that we have, it's construed, meaning that we construct it. And this structure of the self is influenced by culture. And so they go on to explain that these different ways of experiencing the self also reflect other cultural differences uh, in cognition, our mental processes, our experience of emotion, and also motivation. I think that can be hard to make sense of because the way we experience the self seems so personal and private. How could that possibly be shaped by culture? And it's really interesting that when we were discussing this with the podcast team, I asked everyone, when do you feel most yourself? In what situation do you feel that you are really being yourself? And this is a question that I use in my teaching. And it was fascinating because on the podcast team, Daniel, who grew up in Switzerland, and Zena, who grew up in Lebanon, had quite different answers. Let me first quote from what Daniel wrote. In my case, I would say it is, for example, when I am performing on a stage. My usual stages are classrooms. I also feel fully myself when moving, hiking, skiing, dancing, for example. And in response to this, Zaina said, It is not the doing which makes me feel fully myself. Rather, the being with certain people, 
Those people are my husband and friends from different stages in my life, those closest to things I have lived through and experienced. And that difference between Daniel's answer and Zaina's answer, that reflects what my students say too. My American students will often say that they're being themselves when they're doing something they like, for example, listening to their favorite music or doing their favorite sport. My Japanese or East Asian students, they more often talk about feeling themselves when they're with people they feel close to. Probably the most common answer I get is when I'm with my friends or when I'm with my family. The idea is that when they're with the people they care about, then they can really express themselves freely. I think that I relate more to what your Asian students say. My spontaneous response to that question was that I feel most myself when I'm in a familiar environment or with people I feel close to. And all of this agrees with what the Marcus and Kitayama article says. They say, in effect, these differences in how we experience the self depend on the culture that we were raised in. So... People raised in more individualist societies tend to experience what they call an independent construal of self. The feeling that the self is separate from others and has unique qualities that sets it apart. And they contrast that with an interdependent construal of self when we experience the self more in relation to others. And this is something that I will admit, it took me a long time to get a feeling for in Japan, but there is a kind of built-in assumption that people are in things together. For example, a man may refer to his wife as mother, and she may call him father, even if the children aren't there. You know, in, in this moment, you're not so much a separate person as you are a relationship. And so I'm wondering if in India, as in Japan, people use titles and honorifics in this way. Yes, they do. In Bengali, for example, it's rare to call someone only by their first name. You always need to add an honorific that reflects your relationship with them. For example, when I address the grocery store owner, I add a da after his name, which literally means elder brother. People don't just use the word I for themselves. We often say we. Or they. What's well, interesting in Japanese, even the word for self, jibun, implies that people are interrelated. It's made up of two characters, ji, which is self, and bun, which is portion. So the mental image is like each of us is one part of a larger whole. Like a slice of pie. Exactly. And, and not only that, the word you use for I depends on who you are and who you're talking to. There are more polite forms of I, like watashi. There are more masculine forms, like ore or boku. There are more feminine forms, like atashi. One of the most famous books in Japanese literature is by Natsume Soseki, and it's called Wagahai wa Neko Dearu, which is translated into English as I am a cat. But that just doesn't capture the atmosphere, because the word for I in the title is Wagahai, which is it's a rather old-fashioned form of I that's used by high-status males. 
So the cat is referring to itself with this high status form. And that's exactly what makes it amusing. It's as though the cat is looking down its nose at we lowly humans by referring to himself as Wagahai, like the honorable I am a cat. And in fact, that's what the book is about, a, a cat who finds humans so inferior because of their folly. So having different words for I is a reflection of a more interdependent sense of self. We are who we are, not as unique individuals, but in relation to others. In some dialects of Hindi, the first person's singular form, me, is completely non-existent in everyday speech. It's only the first person plural hum, which means we, is used to talk about oneself. And that is so different from Americans. We are constantly talking about ourselves and we have all these words that reflect how important the self is. Like there's self-esteem or self-worth, self-confidence, believing in yourself, self-actualization, following your dream, being your true self. And when I was looking into this, I found this article uh, on the Psychology Today website, which was talking about self-esteem. And it said, confidence in one's value as a human being is a precious psychological resource and generally a highly positive factor in life. Wow. So feeling good about yourself is a precious psychological resource. In India, how would it be if you start talking about the importance of feeling good about yourself? I would seem so full of myself. It seems like there's even sometimes a glorification of the self. I remember reading poetry by Walt Whitman. In Leaves of Grass, he talks about the song of myself. He says, I celebrate myself and sing myself. That is very American. But if we say that culture is a part of the self, then what's the relationship between who we are individually, our personal self, and the parts of us that are cultural, our cultural self? And that brings us to part two. Are you typical? You know, one thing that might be confusing about this topic is that we have been using this word self, but people also use the word identity when talking about these things. Of course, people use these words in different ways, but I think there are some important distinctions to be made. We can say that from the constructivist perspective, we create our sense of self and our worldview based on our experiences, things that we know personally are more real to us. To make this point to my students, I sometimes ask them, if a plane crashes in a faraway country that you don't know anything about, will you care? That's a tough question. What do they answer? Well, usually about half say yes, they would care, and half say no. And the students who say that they would care, they say to their classmates, you know, you should care about this. 
But the classmates who said that they wouldn't care, they say, but do you really care? So we might say we care, but a plane crash in a faraway country just doesn't feel as real. And sometimes a Japanese student will even say to me, well, if there's a Japanese person on the plane, then I will care more. Which just goes to show that the things that are more familiar to us are more part of ourself. So that's what we mean when we talk about the self as a kind of psychological territory. When I use the word identity, on the other hand, I think of that as a kind of label that we use to define or to describe ourselves. So when I say I'm an American, I'm labeling myself. And we often claim a particular identity when we say, you know, I'm a sports fan or I'm gay or I'm a musician. Sometimes, though, people label us in ways that we don't really like. Yes, in Japan, for example, people often simply see me as a foreigner, no matter how long I've lived in Japan or how well integrated I am. So one obvious lesson is that we have to be careful about how we label people. So that's identity. But let's get back to this idea of the self. Earlier, we were talking about how people who are raised in more collectivist societies experience the self as more connected to others. But that doesn't mean that people in more individualist societies do not have a cultural self. Everyone has a cultural self. And what I mean is that Everyone is shaped by the cultural patterns that they grew up with, even if we don't notice those patterns. Right. For example, in India, like in a lot of places, many people identify with particular cultural communities. But even in more individualist societies like Australia, people still look at the world from an Australian point of view. Their experience of the world is still shaped by growing up in Australia. And being a unique individual is not at all contrary to having a cultural self. But it's easy to get that mixed up. You know, some people seem to think that sharing in a culture means that everyone acts the same. So if you talk about cultural patterns, they immediately bring up an exception. I've heard conversations like, so how was Japan? What are Japanese people like? Well, you know, they're rather quiet. Well, I know a Japanese who isn't quiet at all. Well, of course, but, you know, in general. No, but that's just a stereotype. Everyone is a unique individual. Well, of course they are, but, you know, often people don't speak up. I think this kind of confusion comes from the idea that culture is about how we act. So people may think if someone is less typical, that means that they aren't sharing the culture. But that's not what it means. There's no contradiction between being unique and sharing in a cultural community. In fact, understanding how things work in a community, kind of knowing the rules of the game, it's precisely that which lets us express our individual self. experience where I've met someone from a country I knew very little about. 
and it was impossible to know if how they're acting is being typical or it's being a unique part of who they are. And I guess another way to say this is that we are all typical and we are all unique. If you get along with people in society, it means that you are typical. You are interacting in a way that people understand. Even if you decide to do something unconventional, you know that it's unconventional. And it's the same with language. When you don't speak a language well, it's hard to express yourself in a unique way. You really have to master the system to play with it. And it's the people who grow up in a society that have mastered the kind of cultural rules of the game. They know what's expected and they can choose how to play the game. This can also help us understand why living in a collectivist society does not mean you're less of an individual. In fact, when you are around people you know well in a close community, people can really appreciate your uniqueness. You know, I think the irony is that if you're part of a close community, you don't need to constantly talk about how unique you are because people can see it just by interacting with you. In the end, no matter what society we live in, all of us are functioning at those two levels. We understand cultural expectations, and that lets us navigate in our own unique ways. So this kind of answers the question that we started out with of how to be yourself as a cultural bridge person. Because the more deeply we understand different cultural worlds, the easier it is to navigate them in your own way. And that brings us to part three, researching the self. At the beginning of the episode, we said that it's possible to measure cultural differences in how we experience the self. And we referenced this groundbreaking article by Marcus and Kitayama. But to understand what was so remarkable about it, I think we need to back up and look at what came before it. Most traditionally, anthropologists were the ones that studied cultural differences. They would go to some isolated cultural community and study how people lived. On this podcast, we often talk about Edward Hall. He was an anthropologist, but he wasn't interested in that kind of research. He wanted to understand interactions between cultural communities. He wanted to find ways to compare them. For a long time, you studied cultural difference by making comparisons. Goethe Hofstede, for example, famously compared IBM employees in 40 different countries by giving them questionnaires about work preferences. He talked a lot about individualism and collectivism. And this approach looks at culture in terms of shared behaviors. It tries to measure cultural difference by seeing how culture influences behavior. And this really turned into a dominant paradigm. And this is where Marcus and Kitayama come in. Their article was published in 1991. And this was a time when new technologies were just starting to be developed that allowed us to measure cognitive processes in new ways. 
For example, fMRI technology allowed us to measure what areas of the brain are activated in real time. Their article provided the framework for doing that kind of research. So instead of giving out questionnaires and asking about attitudes, researchers could focus on the inner workings of the brain and mind. Since then, there has been just an explosion of this kind of research carried out by for example, psychologists and even neuroscientists. In a sense, the idea that Marcus and Kitayama proposed in 1991, that it's possible to measure differences in how we experience the self, has turned out to be true. So basically, the argument goes like this. Culture influences the way we experience the self, and that relates to other differences. For example, the psychologist Richard Nisbet found that in cognitive processing tasks, East Asians tend to focus more on context, whereas Westerners focus more on objects. Nisbet says that whereas an Asian sees a wall, a Westerner sees a brick. So growing up in a more interdependent community means that you not only relate to other people in a particular way, but that your mind actually processes information differently. That's pretty amazing. There are differences related to some really deep parts of the self. For example, brain imaging studies have found that there are differences in how East Asians and Westerners regulate emotion. I was surprised when I learned about this you would think that emotion is very basic to human beings and that wouldn't be affected by culture. But that's not what the research has found. In general, East Asians have more control over physiological processes of emotion. So, for example, in one study, uh, they showed disturbing images to East Asians and Westerners and the subjects were told to not show any emotion. Interestingly, both Westerners and Asians were able to control their expression of emotion, for example, to not show it on their face. But East Asians were also able to downregulate the physiological markers of emotion. So it wasn't just the expression of emotion. To oversimplify a bit, they were able to turn off their emotion in a way that Westerners couldn't. And the researchers hypothesized that this is because in Asian societies, people are more attuned to the mental and emotional states of others. And the ability to regulate emotions in that way allows people to get along better. And research has also shown that East Asians more spontaneously take the perspective of others when thinking about themselves. All of this makes sense from the perspective of the interdependent construal of self. The self is experienced more in relation to others and less as separate. And there's so much research that we simply don't have time to introduce here. For example, Westerners are more likely to make the fundamental attribution error. This means that they tend to think that people do what they do because of some inner state, whereas Asians more often assume that people do what they do because of the situation. Uh, there's research about motivation, decision-making, interpretation of events. It goes on and on. This is a lot more than we can really digest, but it seems clear that cultural differences in how we experience the self are a lot more complex than it might seem. 
that's all really impressive, but it does leave me wondering a bit about what to take away from all this. What is it for you, Joseph? Well, one thing I take away from all this is, you know, I'm not crazy. After living in Japan for many years, I keep finding these subtle but profound differences in how people experience the world and relate to each other and how they think. And I consider myself a a pretty flexible person and I'm well adapted, but I keep bumping up into these deep cultural differences. Is that discouraging for you? Does that mean that you feel like you can't ever really adjust? No, I mean, we all have challenges adjusting to wherever we live, even if we never leave our hometown. It gives me the feeling that there's always more to explore. Being a cultural bridge person is like carrying out a nonstop experiment in the psychology of the self. Yes, and so is living in India. I am someone who doesn't always feel like I fit into the society that I grew up in. But seeing all of this deep difference makes me feel that maybe I'm not such a misfit after all. And I think that's probably a good place to stop. We've covered a lot of ground today. Yes, and just in case you want to follow up on any of these ideas, here are some of the sources that we've been referring to. We've been talking about Marcus and Kitayama's 1991 article, Culture and the Self-Implications for Cognition, Emotion, and Motivation. If you're interested in learning more about emotion, you might check out Kurata, Moser, and Kitayama, Culture Shapes Electrocortical Responses During Emotion Suppression. We mentioned Richard Nisbet's book, The Geography of Thought. For a brief introduction into the world of cultural neuroscience, check out Shinobu Kitayama's article, Mapping Mindsets, the World of Cultural Neuroscience. And uh, we talked about the work of Gert Hofstetter, Dimensions of National Culture in 50 Countries and Three Regions. Also, the quote about self-esteem came from the Psychology Today website. Just look for Psychology Today Basics Self-Esteem. The Deep Culture Podcast is sponsored by the Japan Intercultural Institute, an NPO dedicated to intercultural education and research. I am the director of JII. To find out more, just do a web search for the Japan Intercultural Institute. And if you like the Deep Culture Podcast, please recommend us on social media. And if you'd like to sign up for the JII newsletter, write us at dcpodcast.com at japanintercultural.org. Thanks to our podcast team, Robinson Fritz, Yvonne Vanderpol, Zaina Matar, Danielle Glintz, and I'd like to give a special welcome to a new member of the JII family, Ikumi Fritz, and all the members of JII. And, of course, thanks to you, Ishita, for sharing this time with me. Thank you, Joseph, for spending a lovely afternoon with me. 